that case. Hope not hates are basically controlling Britain. Hope not hate. An alluring name for those more concerned about social justice than truth. These backwards, these backwards thinking, virtue, sick, virtue signaling, fake news crazy. Welcome to a special episode of the Hope Not Hate podcast. We've been in Parliament for the launch of Hope Not Hate's new report called Fear, Loss and Hope, written by my colleague Rosie. We had a great meeting with dozens of MPs, researchers and activists to talk about the findings. The meeting was kicked off by Lisa Nandy MP who delivered a keynote speech on the drivers of economic pessimism, the divisions that caused and sprang from the Brexit vote and what gives her hope. Before the event kicked off, my colleague Matthew spoke to Lisa and started by asking her how her own experiences shaped her views on all this. Lisa, thanks for joining us on the podcast again. You're our first repeat uh, guest on the, on the, oh, on the podcast. <laughs> I don't know whether that says more about your quality or our inability to attract uh, uh, people to come I'll on. I'll take the, the former. <laughs> I'll just bank it. So we're, we're talking about the, uh, the the Fear, Hope and Loss report that, that came out today and, and you know, talking to you because you wrote the introduction. And um, I think, to me, what makes your contributions on these issues so interesting is it's rooted in your own experience and so I wanted to start by asking you you know can you talk about uh, Wigan and your own experiences and how those uh, you know growing up and also as an MP for the area have informed your contributions to the report? Well just that you know when the Brexit referendum result came in and it became very clear that there was this divide across the country what the academic Will Jennings calls two Englands and that were revealed by Brexit um, the cities voting overwhelmingly to remain and the towns voting in similarly large numbers to leave. When that happened, there was suddenly this rush from the Westminster and Whitehall bubble to characterise towns as these left-behind terrible wastelands where people had nothing left to lose. And actually, I felt a number of us felt that there was something much more profound going on there, that for a very, very long time, people in towns across Britain have been trying to tell us something fundamentally important, which is that the political and economic settlement is not delivering on the things that most matter in their lives and that something needed to change. And they tried to grasp different levers to tell us over the years. There have been the um, falling turnout that we'd seen for several years in the mid-2000s, then we'd had this great dramatic rise in support for UKIP, including in areas like mine where the BNP and the EDL had never really taken hold despite repeated attempts. Um, And then, of course, we had Brexit. And Brexit was the symptom of something that was happening in the country, not the cause. And I felt it was really fundamentally important that people started to understand what that was and what the hope not hate report does so compellingly and brilliantly is that it lays bare how the economic circumstances of people's lives have a huge impact on how they view other people how they view issues like immigration how they view the future and whether they feel fear and insecurity or whether they feel a sense of hope or optimism about what's going to happen next and people's you know, people's economic circumstances are a big driver and and the those people who have previously felt really pessimistic about their chances now feel more optimistic because they voted for brexit and they vote that by brexit they they wanted change are you are you worried that um you know any deal we get in the future isn't gonna be that change and and that might be a bit of a collision that's coming up i think the huge problem 
with what's what happened during the referendum and what's happened since is that that June 2016 was a roar of noise from areas of the country that have felt for far too long that the political and economic settlement is not delivering on the things that most matter in their lives, whether that's work that gives dignity and purpose or whether it's um, wages that offer hope and security for the future, not just for them but for their children, whether it's thriving, good, strong communities. They've watched all of that come unstuck over the last 20, 30, 40 years and they've been trying to tell us for a very long time. And what happened straight away after that result, that political earthquake that should have shaken Westminster and Whitehall to its core, was that we skipped straight from there to the technical and legal debate about what happens next. And frankly, confronting that earthquake with a discussion about the relative merits of a customs union versus a customs partnership simply won't do. And of course it's right that Parliament and Westminster concentrate on making sure that Britain gets the right deal, that we leave the European Union on the right terms, that we don't destroy the fabric of our economy and therefore of our communities in the process. But it's also right that we start to acknowledge and confront the factors that gave rise to that Brexit vote in the first place. And the worry about what is happening in Britain at the moment for me is that there is very little sign across the political spectrum that we're starting to do that. And so those people who felt a glimmer of hope for the first time, who came out to vote in the EU referendum, often for the first time in 10, 15 years, in two or three general elections, who told us that fundamentally they believed that things needed to change and that this was the moment when perhaps they had been handed the levers to make that change. My worry is that whatever deal we end up with post-Brexit, we're not going to confront those issues. But the hope is here, I suppose, is that when they came out for the first time in decades to vote in that referendum, we learnt something, or should have, that this is not apathy, this is anger. And anger can be channelled, it can be worked with, it can be acknowledged and understood. It is a force. You can't do anything with apathy, but you can do a lot with anger. And actually, these are strong, ambitious communities who know that Britain can be much better than it is now. And there is a moment suddenly in British politics, particularly because those towns are now the key battlegrounds for the next election, where things could change for people in those areas. But the worry, I think, for me and for many people across those communities is that so far politics has failed to respond. Yeah. I heard you talk at Labour Party conference about... Um, people wanting more control over their lives and that, that that slogan resonated so well in the referendum but it isn't just about whether it's a group of politicians in Brussels or a group of politicians in London having control it's about local people having control over their own lives and uh, you, you talk really um, compellingly about um, people wanting to do something to make lives better uh, locally Um is it is it a kind of a you know we've we've moved on from a redistribution of wealth to a redistribution of of control that people if they've given if they're given the levers locally to to do something and make change they'll they've got the anger to drive them to use them. Um, so there was a moment for me during the referendum campaign when I went to Sunderland with Bridget Phillipson, who's the brilliant local MP there, and 
um, the GMB trade union and we sat in a room of Nissan workers who were really angry about the current settlement but angry also about the EU and they were determined to vote leave and the GMB rep said um, these are really good skilled jobs, these are some of the only good skilled jobs in the area and they will go if you vote to leave and there was a man in the audience who got up and said what you've got to understand is that we know and we're going to do this anyway and that guy has been called and people like him have been called racist they've been called stupid they've been called little englanders they've you know been told that they couldn't understand the question that they were been asked the people have railed against what they think of his irrationality ever since then. But actually, for me, this was the moment when I stopped talking in that referendum campaign and started listening. And what he was talking about was a story of the loss of control over several decades over the things that most mattered to him, to his family and to his community. And this was the opportunity that he had to get us to sit up and listen and to start taking notice. And what that taught me, actually, is that people will forego economic benefit in order to get more control over their own lives there's a reason why take back control caught the mood in towns like mine like no other slogan in my lifetime and it's because actually that's how people have felt for a very very long time and I think the lesson for the Labour Party is that over 13 years in power for all the great things that were done and delivered you can't just take wealth from the top and hand it with conditions to people at the bottom and leave those fundamental power relations undisturbed because people have different priorities you know the priorities in the East Marsh Estate in Grimsby will be very different from the priorities in Wigan and actually the experience that I've had of working with Whitehall over several decades is that Whitehall sees only problems but those communities see power and potential in their own communities and so East Marsh is a really good example that is used in this brilliant report that Hope Not Hate have done where um, East Marsh United are a community group that have formed to solve some of those problems for themselves for all of the challenges that have been thrown at them by an indifferent political system that has effectively abandoned them and um, blocked any investment or funding or potential in those communities for a very long time, there's a recognition there that if change is going to come, it's going to come from the grassroots up. And so they form this community association and they're actually making a real difference to people's lives. And actually, if you hand those communities the tools and the power to make decisions for themselves, suddenly you'd get a completely different settlement. The the report itself is it, it can make for quite gloomy reading. There's there are a lot of challenging views that people hold. Um, the number of people who thought who think that there are areas in the country where there is Sharia law and there are no go areas for the police and you know believe that conspiracy theory if you like is is really alarming. But as I was reading through the report. Um, uh, I kind of the, the the thing that gives me hope about it is you can see that glimmer of uh, 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 you can see that the hope for me comes from the fact that there is a pathway, there is there is a way through this, which is people like the um, East Marsh uh, United and community groups like that up and down the country, where people without the headlines and without. Um, uh, you know the, the the kind of good news stories never get the documentary crew following you around while you redo the community centre and bring in youth groups and start a, a daycare centre and so on. Do, 
I think it's but I think it's a bit harder for you in politics where like not not very much has changed since the referendum and and you, sometimes it feels a bit like you're you were kind of a lone voice not completely alone but do you feel that hope do you see that pathway through I do f- I feel optimistic because it feels to me that over the course of my lifetime I was born in 1979 and over the course of my lifetime, it feels like the parameters of what's possible have been completely constrained. At times, it's felt so claustrophobic, it's almost been hard to breathe. That there's been a settlement that we've accepted that has held for so long and suddenly has been bust wide open. And there are a few things behind that. I mean, first of all, that, you know, the, the Manchester that I was born into in 1979 was much older than its surrounding towns because the jobs and investment were concentrated in towns across Britain. And as those manufacturing jobs and industrial jobs disappeared, um, we started to see a shift in that and the loss of young people and working-age populations and spending power from our towns. And Many of the places that are documented in this report have seen that loss over a very long period of time. And then what happened was that you got a new Labour government who opened up huge opportunities for many of those young people to grasp the chance, often the first in their families, to go to university, to move away, to get good jobs and opportunities. But when those kids look back, increasingly they found there was nothing to return home to. And in 2005, Tony Blair made a speech where he said the character of this changing world is unforgiving of frailty and indifferent tradition. The future is replete with opportunities, but it only goes to those swift to adapt, slow to complain, open, willing and able to change. And effectively, it set us on a course where huge amounts of investment and opportunity were concentrated in cities for those who could adapt, who could go to university, who could get those well-paid white-collar jobs. But for those surrounding towns, the settlement was quite simply warehouses that offered dead-end, zero-hour, zero-hope jobs that give neither dignity or purpose. And so you go to a town like Barnsley, where pride in the mining history is palpable, And there's a real nostalgia for the past, but nobody there wants their kids to work down the mines or their grandchildren to work down the mines. What they want is for their children and their grandchildren to have a better future than either moving away and living hundreds of miles away or packing boxes in ASOS for the minimum wage, which is the largest employer there. And you contrast that with somewhere like Silicon Valley where the federal government has real power to drive investment through tax incentives, through clean energy regulations. They've created a market and they've created a world-leading hub in renewable energy. And so their young people are designing the battery technology of the future and kids in Barnsley are assembling solar panels and packing boxes for the minimum wage. And the anger in those towns comes from the fact that they know that that can be better. And it's no surprise to me then that in those areas that what you get is that perfect storm of factors that lead to real hostility to um, the, the idea of immigration and people being able to come in and get opportunities to work in those communities. Because in the referendum, there was a Labour politician who'd said, you're more likely to be um, queuing, uh, queue, um, treated by a migrant in the NHS than you are to be queuing behind one. It was a really neat line, and it was right, actually, it's true. But there was a woman in my constituency who said, but I want to work in that hospital, I want to work in the NHS, my dream is to be a nurse, and you've just abolished the nursing bursary, so why should I be glad that there are people who come from all over the world to work here when you've just taken away that chance 
for me. And actually, that's not um, just an anger. That's an ambition, a sense of ambition and power and understanding about the potential that there is in our towns, that the public got before we did. And in politics, we've been too slow to respond to. And so I suppose the optimism and the hope for me comes from the fact that the public are smarter than we are and they got there first. And if we can respond right, and particularly for me as a Labour politician, if Labour can get this right, then the future could look very different than the past. And that's an exciting moment in British politics. Everything about the future of this country is up for grabs, but it's an awesome responsibility too. Thanks very much for joining us. We really appreciate the time. Uh, your second time on, on, the, on, the, on the podcast. Thank you, Lisa and Andy. Thanks. If you're interested in learning more about the Fear, Hope and Loss report, you can download the whole thing on our website. Just go to hopenothate.org.uk and there's a link right on the front page. You can also read about our findings in The Guardian and The Independent and numerous other reputable media outlets. And the best way to get those is to head to our Twitter feed, which is at Hope Not Hate. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like this podcast, please leave us reviews and ratings on your preferred podcast platform. It really does help us. I don't quite know how, but I keep being told it does. Um, And it helps new people find out about us and what we're doing. Uh, Thanks and talk to you all again next week.